Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. It's March 30th, 2018. We're here at Ransom Wine and Spirits in Sheridan with Tad Seastet. And Tad, we're going to start you off with a nice easy question, which is why wine? I guess I think for me the answer is that wine came about because it's something that was a big part of my life. And I had a series of jobs that I didn't really fully enjoy. And I grew up on a farm and wanted to get back to a kind of a rural agricultural style of life. And I wanted to carry ag products through to finished product. And wine seemed to be a pretty good choice. So once you decided to do that, how did you go about getting into the business? I moved to Oregon and started looking for a job. Actually, I mean, I probably started, I really started several years before I moved out here. So um, I went back to night school and started um, taking chemistry and biology courses, which I hadn't taken a lot of my first time around, and read a lot of books on viticulture and enology, and spent all available extra money on different wines to taste and to, in order to develop my palate and just learn more about wine in general. And why did you choose Oregon when you decided to get into it? Uh, I grew up in the Finger Lakes area of New York. And I think at that point in my life, I was, uh, I drank both white and red wines, but I was more interested in making red wine and Pinot Noir in particular. And it does, they do grow it in the Finger Lakes, but I didn't think at that point, 25 to 30 years ago, that that wine was very good coming out of that area. I think it's improved a lot. Like mm-hmm. It's improved um, phenomenally in the last 30 years. And um, I think that, you know, I thought about Long Island, but I didn't want to be in, I wanted to be in a rural environment. And never having been to California, um, I figured Oregon would suit my personality better. <laughs> So what happened once you arrived, when you started to kind of get into the business? What, where, did you, where, did, where did you go first? I had written letters to probably half a dozen of the wineries that I knew about at that time. And um, I think only one person that I had written a letter to remembered that I, they had received a letter from me. And, and I was surprised because <laughs> I said, hey, it's like I'm quitting my job in... Uh, four months and I'm going to come out to Oregon and I would love to talk to you about work. And um, so I I went to all those places and talked to those people and uh, um, ended up getting a job uh, probably in a few few weeks after arriving. Mm -hmm. And so you also had this the spirits angle. So what point did did you get interested in distilling and and that as well? I think I was always interested in spirits, although it seemed like a, and it was, a much harder endeavor to get involved in at that point 25 years ago, uh, because there simply weren't many distilleries, and really the only one in this area was Clear Creek in Portland. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had 
talked with Steve McCarthy a couple of times and wanted to, I wanted to help him part-time and of course I would be educating myself at the same time but that never worked out and I ended up building a little still of my own and started experimenting. That was either 93 or 94, I don't remember which year it was. So you're in Oregon, you've kind of got the wine bug and you've got the spirits bug. So how do you go from there to here now? I guess that uh, my, my experimenting, I guess, was encouraging. Um, and I, you know, I had, at that time I was involved with a, a woman from France who was also a winemaker and she was kind of helped feeding that, I think because she would bring back uh, mostly brandies from France for me to try. And one that really, the one that really got me thinking was um, a Mirabelle that her stepfather had made in his garage. And her stepfather, I think was an accountant or some kind of, you know, he had a white collar job. And I think it had to do with finance. And it blew me away. It was probably, it was one of the best brandies I'd ever had. And I thought, wow, it's like if this accountant guy in France can make something that tastes this great, then maybe I can do it too. Uh, when you started to, as you started to learn, where were some of the, what were some of the like sort of breakthrough moments for you when it came to, was there a time when you felt like, okay, I can make this, this is good as you were going through your path on uh, into starting Ransom? Yeah, I mean, I guess that, I mean, so Ransom is both wines and spirits mm -hmm. and uh, my, you know, I, I guess all of my early years in the wine industry were not entirely production related. I did, I did vineyard, vineyard work as well, but that was the part of the industry that I was pretty focused on was um, the growing and, and the fermenting and then later distilling happened. Um, but I just, now I just lost track of what you were That's good. I was wondering if there, was like, if there were like breakthrough moments for you as okay. you were going in that you, that you kind of thought, I can do this. Yeah, I think on the wine end, you know, that working for other people and making wine, you know, I, you know, my first year was, uh, I guess, I don't know what to call it, uh, an, an extremely sharp learning curve. And I had applied to UC Davis to do their master's program, mm -hmm. but deferred. Um, because I wanted to actually work in wineries first um, to see if it, if it was something that I was really going to enjoy before I took the leap to go back to work on another degree and of course borrow money and take student loans and things like that and I think like one of the breakthrough moments was just the fact that I felt like I'd learned so much just by doing things on the job the first year and I went to do a summer course at Davis a short one and uh, what they were going over, I had already learned just by doing it. And I think that was a breakthrough moment for me. I realized, like, you know, maybe it isn't this thing that we really have to study intensely for and have a, a degree that's geared towards that particular endeavor. And that, uh, you know, winemaking is probably similar to things like cooking or, or anything else where you can learn by being an apprentice and you can actually learn pretty well and study on your own and learn the other things that are maybe on that periphery. Was there ever a time when you thought you would just just do wine or just do spirits or were you kind of always focused on doing both? I think I was always focused on both and I mean it's, it's interesting you know, if you consider yourself you know a winemaking professional and depending on what time you enter that profession you may only have 30 or 40 actual 
seasons mm -hmm. to you know work on your craft and um, you know it, it's super intense but it doesn't last very long and working with spirits and fermenting other fruits or fermenting with grains allowed me to ferment all year round so it was, it's a way also I think to um, develop further as a professional so let's talk about when you uh, when you decided to start your own business, decided to start Ransom. What were some of the initial challenges that you that you saw as you were starting to get this business off the ground? I think the largest uh, challenge for me was financial. There's no question about that, um, and and experience. So um, you know, but whether it's winery, distillery, or vineyard, all three of those things are very intensive, capital-wise and time-wise, and. I didn't have enough money, I didn't have any investors, and I didn't have enough money saved to keep afloat before the first product was released, so um, I still needed to have another job, um, which meant between working full-time and starting a business, the amount of hours that I was working was um, a fairly substantial um, part of every day and every week. And I thought that that would change after I stopped working for other people, but it, it only changed a little bit. Um, but I think that, you know, I think for most people who have started, a lot of people started in Oregon, I think different from other places in the country, and there's a lot of people have done it, you know, kind of bootstrapping. And that, you know, for me was, it was extremely difficult. You know, the first seven years, the business hemorrhaged money, so it put a lot of strain on me as an individual, um, um, my relationship, and other things, um, but everything lasted and it worked out in the end. How did you come to this particular location that we are, that we're on today? I uh, bought this farm uh, about 10 years ago and um, I had been renting space for both the winery and the distillery and was looking for some way to bring them both together. They were in separate locations which made running those two businesses um, a little more complicated and you know whatever I needed when I was at one place was almost inevitably at the other place um, and there was a, you know it was an hour plus drive in between the two oh. so um, the farm allowed me to bring everything together and um, it was also it was good in a way that I'd been trying to move the winery was in McMinnville um, for quite a while and I was trying to move the distillery there, but ran into a lot of, um, I guess I would call them bureaucratic um, roadblocks. And, and I will try to be diplomatic about that. Um, it was pretty horrific, actually. So it actually kind of fought um, for a couple of years and wasted a huge amount of time and huge amount of money and lost production for two years and uh, finally gave up and um, put an offer in on this farm and it all came together and um, in less than six months it, from start to finish the distillery was moved here and licensed whereas I had uh, struggled with the uh, bureaucracies for a couple of years trying to move the distillery to McMinnville it just didn't work out. Sure. What are some of the you mentioned earlier kind of the, the you get one shot a year at wine while distilling distilling is more of an ongoing what are some of the like similarities and differences between the two and do you have a preference of one over the other i think the i mean the mechanics of fermentation are are pretty similar 
um, when you break it down. Um, but um, you know, there are the details between the differences in a grain ferment and a grape ferment or other fruit ferments are, are pretty different. Um, I don't have a preference. I, I like like them both. I mean, we have there's wort fermenting in here right now. Um, I don't know if you can smell it, um, but I had the fan running earlier so we wouldn't asphyxiate on carbon dioxide. Um, but I think that um, you know that it's. I don't. I don't think I can pick a favorite. I mean, I love grape harvest in the beginning of crush for about the first three weeks, and then a lot of times I wish. Wow, I, why can't our harvest just last three weeks instead of eight weeks? Or why don't they invent a grape that we can only we only harvest every two years, so we get a year <laughs> off in between? But I mean, that, those are just jokes. You know, I mean, I think that I think most of us, and certainly for me, and the in, you know industry-wise, that we love fermentations, and there's just something magical about it, and it, whatever it may be that's fermenting. Did you have, um, who were kind of the people in the industry as you were getting started that you kind of looked at as either mentors or people to emulate? Well, the, the wines that I had tried uh, before I moved to Oregon um, were Bethel Heights, Amity, Cameron, um, Erath, and a few others. And I guess that, you know, for me not, you know, not having met any of the cast of characters, before I moved out here, I just I drew my conclusions based on what I had tasted, and um, you know those. I'm pretty sure that was before the internet existed, but um, it may not be. I only found out about the internet uh, recently. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, I I just think that you know those that group of like the very early pioneers through the group of people that probably started in the 80s. I think they were. Um, they were all doing really good things and, and that it made a big difference for me to want to move here and stay here. I'm curious, you're the first person we've talked to in our many interviews who's doing wine and spirits and I'm curious if that, if you feel like you're a part of both industries or do you feel like you're a bit of an outsider within the industries or if there's a kind of a difference to how you perceive, you're perceived or you perceive yourself? I, I think it goes both ways. You know, it's interesting because to me I, I, I feel like I'm part of both, but you know, I'll run into people in the distilling side of the industry and say, oh, you make wine? Or it's like, you know, how can you do both things? And you know, kind of the same thing on the spirit side. I, I think it's, it's unusual, you know, and I guess it, it doesn't seem that unusual for me. And um, when I grew up, I grew up on a small family farm, it was kind of self-sufficient. And so we, you know, we raised most of our own food and, you know, vegetables and meat and made, you know, everything from maple syrup to apple cider. And um, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of things that I, I don't remember making because they weren't all fun <laughs> to do. Um, but I also think it's kind of more of an old world model. And, I, you know, I think, you know, if you go either to the pretty rural places in America or rural places in the old world, you see that a family makes almost all of what they need or what they consume. And I guess kind of growing up that way, what I do now doesn't seem that odd. Um, it's, I guess to some people, some people think that we should be specialists and focus on one thing, and I just don't agree with that. 
along those lines, do you have a, like a winemaking or spirit making philosophy? Yes. Um, I have a lot of opinions. Um, we probably don't have time to talk about them all today. But I, I, basically, I think that you know, if, if we're talking about wine or spirits or food, um, I, my philosophy, if I was going to break it down, put it in simple terms, would be that what we're eating or drinking should be a reflection of what was grown and what the raw materials were. And so uh, we don't use new oak. Um, there's a little bit in the distillery still, but not much. Mm -hmm. None in the winery. Um, and, you know, my, you know, one of my rationales or like dumb jokes about that is, you know, I, I see oak as kind of being the ketchup of the wine industry. And I loved ketchup when I was a little kid, but I hate it now. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's used in that way where, you know, a lot of people don't realize what it is that they're smelling or tasting. And a large part of both the wine industry and the spirits industry is actually the aging vessel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, depending on the percent of new wood that's used, and sometimes that percentage is pretty large. And if people like it, that's fine. It, you know, it's not, everyone has their own particular preference. Mm -hmm. It's not mine. Um, uh, you know, when it comes to food, I prefer relatively simply prepared food so you can actually taste what it is that you're eating but the same carries through with with spirits and wine and um, I also think that part of our philosophy here is that um, I might be forcing it on some of my employees maybe but probably not you know is not to completely forsake technology but to have technology take a back seat to our own set of instincts and um, what nature itself is doing. So we want the wines and the, probably more so the wines, like to reflect that, that particular growing season or where, where it is that they came from and definitely the varietal that we're talking about. Um, and that's really important to me in that if we're going to talk about, um, you know, I guess we'll mostly talk about Pinot Noir here, at least in the Willamette Valley. I won't say Oregon because other places in Oregon um, don't really grow too much Pinot Noir or don't think much of Pinot Noir, which is fine too. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that uh, all those things taken together, you know, uh, technology, cooperage, have a way of putting their own stamp on something that should bear its own stamp. Do you have a how did you come to that philosophy? Is that something that you kind of went into it thinking, or is that something you developed over the years of working? I went into it thinking that, um, but I think it's interesting, interesting because my first two or three years as a winemaker, I tried to run every lab test imaginable and you know figure out as much analytically as I could. And I think I just kind of slowly started moving away from that and um, started, you know, I definitely believe now that a lot of the analytical tests that are done really uh, kind of serve a counterproductive purpose and it takes away from us as a winemaker or a distiller or a grower um, our, our set of skills and our instinct and our ability to make decisions and do things that uh, Maybe different from other people, but 
also may be different from what nature wants to do. And, you know, I've seen, you know, I guess I've been making wine for 25, this will be my 27th year. And I've seen, it wasn't like we were the Stone Age when I started working, because I'm not that old. <laughs> but um, I've just seen, you know, huge technological changes and advancements in that amount of time. And in general, I, I don't think the purpose of those is to make necessarily a better wine or spirit or ones that reflect the raw materials better. Um, they, some are meant to, you know, make something that tastes better, maybe to appeal to a broader audience or a certain type of palate preference. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, I think it's going the wrong direction. Along those same lines, you've seen a lot of changes in both of the industries that you're involved in, obviously, in, in 25 plus years. I'm curious, uh, in addition, b besides just pure size, what are some of the other big differences you've seen in the last 25 years in, in wine and spirits industries? Can you say that again? The biggest differences you've seen, in addition to just, besides just pure size, um, the biggest differences you've seen either in changing attitudes or changing behaviors or things like that in the wine or spirits? I, it, it's, I think it's an interesting question because I don't think either one of those industries have necessarily changed in a linear way. They've gone back and forth. Interesting. Right? And so if you, with some deviation, like uh, Chardonnay might be a good example of a grape varietal and a wine to use. So when I first moved here, there was still a pretty big push from the Oregon wine industry to make and sell Oregon Chardonnay. And it was changing at that point already. I mean, the pen pendulum had, had shifted and uh, the style of Chardonnay that was coming out of Oregon was generally not what was favored by either the critics or the consumer. And the, it's not to bash California, but the Californian style of like lower acid, mm -hmm. probably more wood um, and, you know, rich, full-bodied wine rather than leaner, more austere wines was definitely what more people wanted than not. Mm -hmm. And Chardonnay vines were either ripped out en masse in the Willamette Valley or grafted over to another varietal. Um, and part of that has to do with pricing too, so that's another change that was working at the same time. So uh, when I first moved here, you know, I think Chardonnay was I can't remember exactly. I know in some cases, Chardonnay was selling for less than $1,000 a ton. And obviously, from a grower's perspective, that's not economically viable, um, which is why I think people either tore it out or grafted over and mostly went to Pinot Noir because it fetched a higher price. And you know now we see things switching back, you know, more emphasis on Chardonnay and actually away from what we thought of as the old California style, even within California, mm -hmm. um, with some exceptions. And so I think it's kind of, there's a kind of a constant change that goes on definitely in the wine industry. I think the spirits industry is a little slower to either change or respond to um, either demands for change or conditions that need adapting to. Uh, but the spirits industry is also mostly um, made up of very large companies. Mm -hmm. And so small companies on the winery end of things have been around for a very long time and there's a vast number of them. And small distilleries have not been around for very long. Um, you know, we're, this is our 21st year and we're considered 
um, a pioneer. Um, so, you know, in regards to the wine industry, the craft spirits industry is very young, um, and that change is just in its infancy right now. So, when you talk about the, it's interesting, I've never heard anybody talk about the kind of back and forth change as much as that. Is that being, do you think, driven mostly by consumer, or mostly by producer, or is it just kind of a, a give and take? I think both. I think one kind of feeds the other, and um, uh, from our, from the viewpoint of producers, I think we respond more to what the consumer wants, so, and a lot of that, you know, I guess the, probably the best example to use, and again, it's like, it's not, it's not meant to bash anybody, it just is what it is, but you know, the Parker um, syndrome, where, um, you know, I say most people, if you ask them 20 years ago, they wanted big red wines, probably a fair amount of new oak, high alcohol, and maybe a little bit of residual sugar, but that's just, that's just my, my palate um, kind of, you know, breaking it down, uh, you know, and it shifted, and I think it needed to shift, you know, and I remember, um, this is just kind of an odd little antidote, but um, you know, I've run into people through, throughout the years who, uh, if you put a bottle of white wine on the table, said like, they didn't drink white wine, mm -hmm. and they didn't consider it to be wine. Um, and, you know, I was at a, a Pinot Noir tasting we had set up with um, some other winemakers, and this uh, was a winemaker, a friend of mine who was working for a new winery at the time, but this is quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. it was, uh, it was at between 15 and 20 years ago. So Parker Powell was still dominating. Mm -hmm. And the wine was started by um, some software people who had fairly deep pockets. And I think they, you know, they had the money to drink wines that garnered the attention of the critics and got high scores. And after we finished the Pinot Noir tasting, we were gonna go into tasting of Alsatian Whites. Mm -hmm. And one of the people there um, said, made the comment, and this is a person who is in the wine industry that they didn't drink white wines and they didn't consider them wine. And I can't always um, keep my mouth shut when I should. And so I think I made some dumb comment. That's like, that's like saying um, that oral sex isn't sex. Um, you know, I, I mean, I said something along those lines, but kind of dumb. But just to try to make my point, you know, and I guess it horrifies me when I hear things like that from someone in the industry because. These are the people that other people, you know, whether they be consumers or writers, um, whoever they may be, will listen to. Mm -hmm. And I think things like that are extremely damaging. Absolutely. So then, what do you foresee the next changes to be? What do you see happening in the next, say, 10 or 15 years in, in both of your industries? I think uh, definitely the changes on the spirits end of things is pretty dynamic right now. Um, you know, w when I founded the distillery in 1997, throughout the country, I'm certain there were less than 20 micro distilleries. Um, wow. And I think it might even have been in the, you know, maybe even less than 15. There were f four in Oregon, and we had, like, we were, like, the concentration. <laughs> Oregon and California, and there's a few scattered else around the states, but there are now um, over 2,000. So, and most of that growth is within the last five years, some within the last 10 years, but um, certainly within the last 
five years, the craft spirits industry has just exploded. And so I think you know, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. And um, part of the issue is because it is such a new industry, there's more education available now, I think, than certainly there was for me 25 years ago. Uh, but it, there still isn't that much, you know, and um, it's changing. But, you know, and the wine industry has been around for such a long time, even within the United States, mm -hmm. that there are places where people could go. And obviously, you know, if you look at the universities in California, like Davis and Fresno State or University of Michigan or Cornell, and these places, they have, uh, you know, you can major in viticulture or enology. Mm -hmm. Where, as far as I know, that still doesn't exist for distillation in the United States. So if people want to learn about that and the production end, they need to go to Europe. Um, and the, the wine industry uh, it is also interesting. It's like certainly there's been um, an explosion in small wineries and, and large ones as well. And it'll just, it's just, for me, it's just gonna be interesting to see what happens. And I think that's part of our change that goes back and forth, like the pendulum shifts. And, you know, if I've been in the wine industry now for 25 years, a little more than 25 years, we've seen the pendulum shift in an economic way back and forth at least two or three times. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see. I mean, I, I guess I hope that our economy um, holds together but I don't think anything holds together forever. <laughs> so what do you think will, the Oregon industry will look like then in, say, 15 years from now? Do you think it'll be more wineries? Think it will have consolidated? Do you have any, any thoughts? The, the trend right now is consolidation. Um, it's a little scary, actually. So um, there's consolidation on all ends of the industry. So there's consolidation on the production end where either um, large wineries or medium size or in small wineries that have more money and deeper pockets are buying up other wineries to kind of create, um, I wouldn't say create a mega winery, but it's more of a mega company mm -hmm. um, that has numerous different brands. And we're seeing the same thing on the distribution end. And that that's probably the most frightening part. So right now, two large distributors, um, control 55% of every all wine and spirits sold within the United States. And those two large companies right now are moving to make further acquisitions and increase their market share. And as they're doing that, small and medium-sized distribution companies are either getting squeezed and some are getting muscled out. Some are trying to compete with these two other large companies and buy up other companies in other states. So, you know, and, you know, I have a small company, but I have three distributors, distribution companies mm -hmm. that have, that are medium sized, that have gone on kind of shopping spree, I guess you could say. And I think one of them is going to survive and do really well. And the other two look like they may fail. Mm. Um, and that I think is only going to create more opportunity for the two big ones sure. to take more brands and control more market share and control more market within the states that they operate in because they have less competition on the distribution end. And also the consolidation that's happening on the retail end of things. Um, it's, I mean, it, it could be good and bad. It just, you know, depends. Like if we have these large retailers who are, you know, where most people are going to shop and buy their wines and spirits, that's good. 
as long as they're selling your products. If they're not selling your products and the other small boutique wine shops or liquor stores are going out of business, it's gonna be really bad for small producers. And most, most of what we have here in Oregon would qualify as a small producer. So I, you know, I'm not saying it's like uh, scary times ahead, but it's, it's definitely concerning. And as you mentioned, you've seen a lot of changes over the years. So how have you dealt with the kind of shifting back and forth of, of what consumers are asking for and also the kind of now skyrocketing number of wineries and competition that you, that you suddenly have? How have you kind of navigated those waters? Uh, I, I, I think for my company personally, um, I don't know if we've been lucky or just kind of the right things happened at the right time. Um, you know, I, I was making a joke with one of my distillery colleagues uh, last week, and we had the American Distillers Conference in Portland, and we're saying like, yeah, the first 10 years really sucked, and the last 10 years have been really great. Um, you know, so I, I mean, you know, I, I feel like my company's in a very strong um, position, and most of our sales go through the distribution channel, and you know, there's uh, you know a lot of talk about being able to sell direct to the consumer, whether it's at a tasting room or shipping out of state through um, a shopping site on your, on your website or through some other um, mechanics, whether it, be, you know, it could be a, a secondary website or marketing company, and then we would ship directly. But um, part of, I think, that change that's happening is also affecting our business models. So we want to sell more direct to consumer, I think, Pretty much everyone in the wine and spirits industry does, but when the larger companies and larger entities gain more power, influence, market share, and money, mm -hmm. the legislation changes, and it's not in our favor. So and that's, I think, for me, I think you know, trying to maintain diverse uh, diversity within the business model is a key to success, um, but it may not always be up to us to make that choice. So what does the future look like then for Ransom? What do you, where do you see it going in the next decade? Um, we're, it's, it's interesting. I, we are um, trying to simplify things, or I am trying to simplify things. And um, I'm not really old, but I'm in my mid-50s. And um, I, you know, I, I love what I do. Um, and I want to do it until I'm dead. But I don't want to do it for 60 or 70 hours a week. So we, we've done a lot of different things here and experimenting with grape varietals and different blends and styles of wine and we make you know vermouths and in the distillery we make a wide array of different spirits but I think uh, I had um, someone working with me a, f a few years ago who brought it to my attention that the company had more than 30 SKUs and it I got it at that point it's like you know all these we we've probably done almost everything that could be done and it's been great for us to develop professionally and to stay um, kind of you know in an experimental mm -hmm. frame of mind and you know that keeps us stimulated and um, helps us grow and at this point we are simplifying so you know we, we don't make vodka anymore um, and I'm happy about that um, and a few other things but I think you know we're gonna kind of streamline the company and make the things that we're really passionate about and take those things and try to make them better and hopefully have more time 
to enjoy life as human beings <laughs> as well as enjoy life as worker bees. True. It's a noble goal. I like that. Then uh, this next question kind of applies to both industries, but what, what advice would you give someone who's looking to get into either wine or spirits industry? Um, well, I'd start with the mistakes that I made and uh, turn that into the advice. And um, the first mistake is just kind of being naive and, you know, it worked out, but I really had no money. I couldn't get a bank loan um, because I had no collateral and uh, didn't have any rich relatives to loan me money. Or if I did have rich relatives, they weren't going to loan me any money. Um, but that, I think that's something that you can't really change. And I, I think that can be worked around. And that if you look at um, owning a business as a long-term or a lifetime endeavor, it doesn't need to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. um, and you can start small and grow slowly um, to the point um, where you can quit your day job, which is one of the other things that I did, which I would advise no one to quit their day job. Uh, <laughs> I had to get another day job. Uh, so, you know, I think that, um, the, that the financial thing is really a really big part of it, because if you look at either the wine or the spirits industry, you're producing for probably at least two years before you're selling anything. So you just have an enormous cost in building inventory before you bring anything to market. And um, I guess uh, the market is the other big issue, is to understand your market and to think about sales, which was my other big mistake because I thought sales were easy until I tried to sell things. And I thought the market would want what I made because I liked it <laughs> and it wasn't right. So, you know, with the, with the distillery, I was making um, grape varietal specific eau de vies. So um, Pinot Noir, Riesling, Gewürztraminer, Muscat, and Brandy, which was aging, and Grappa. And I loved those things. And I thought other Americans did too, but I was very wrong. Um, and Americans drink almost no brandy, eau de vie, or grappa. <laughs> and so for the distillery, you know, it, it took, uh, it was almost 10 years before I started to work with grains. It was um, 2005, started working with, to work on gin and whiskey mm -hmm. in a serious way. And that completely changed the economic picture for the distillery and was simply making something that the market wanted. Sure. So I think those are the big ones. I think, you know, understand your market, have your economics figured out, don't quit your day job, and, and persevere. Yeah. You know, I think um, I was certainly extremely discouraged from my third to seventh year. And it was, it was difficult to keep going. I mean, it was a struggle. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that I did, because if I had stopped, that it would have been a mistake. How did you convince yourself to keep going, if you don't mind my asking? Um, I took an economics course once in college, and they talked about sunk costs. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought about everything I had invested at that point, both monetarily and in time and sweat. Um, and I don't cry that much anymore. But if, if I did, there would have been a lot of tears. Um, and that's what kept me going. I thought, Shit, I can't. I've got so much into this. If I walk away now, it, I'm a, well, I've wasted years of my life. 
and it worked out, you know, so I feel fortunate. Good. Uh, that's all the questions we have for you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any questions that I should have asked that I didn't? No. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.